Hi, everyone, and welcome. You are listening to Speeching It Real, a podcast where I interview future and current speech language pathologists. Here, you can learn all about what it's like to get started in the field, see how paths and interests change, and connect with people going through the same things you are. I am your host, Chris Ubieta, and I am currently a second year grad student at CU Boulder. Quick disclaimer, all statements and opinions on this podcast are not reflections of the organizations or schools associated with the speakers. Each person's words reflect their own opinions, including my own. Hi, everyone. Today, we have on a very special guest and one of my first professors to join us, Sherry Tennant. She is an associate professor at CU Boulder and runs her own private practice. She's an AAC specialist and focuses on literacy development. On today's episode, we're going to talk about her role on the admissions committee and all about AAC. So let's jump right into it. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Speeching It Real. I have on one of my wonderful professors, Sherry Tennant, today. She is an incredible person, a very knowledgeable AAC teacher, and um, yeah, welcome on. Thank you. It's great to be here, Christy. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So I'm impressed with this podcast. <laughs> why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, well, professionally, I've been a speech-language pathologist for 30 years now. I graduated from UW-Madison in 1993 with my master's, and I grew up in Wisconsin, but uh, then ventured elsewhere. Obviously, here I am in Colorado, and I feel like this is home now for me. And even in graduate school, I studied AAC, so I had the opportunity to specialize even then. I had a scholarship to study it at that point in time. But I also have traveled uh, out of the country, so I do have a passion for especially visiting Spanish-speaking countries. Um, I, you know, studied and spoke Spanish I'm at an intermediate level, but now so rusty that I haven't been practicing. So I hope someday I can uh, increase my fluency. But yeah, traveling and um, working a lot. And um, I also love yoga and I'm a musician as well. So um, singing and playing guitar and piano. Yeah, I love hearing about your passions being an important part of your introduction. It's good. Yes, (laughs) at some point, um, work-life balance is really important you know, helps us be better for everybody in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I feel like my experience with you is that you're so good at your job and you're such a hard worker that it's hard to find that work-life balance for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Lately, I've been focusing more on just quality rather than quantity. So Mm. being really present with, you know, whoever you're with, um, which is a little tricky sometimes when you have a lot on your mind. Absolutely. I think that's very important, especially when we're in the room with our clients. Yes, (laughs) definitely. What got you interested in becoming a speech language pathologist? Well, so my younger brother, uh, I have a brother that's 10 years younger than me. And so he was born with a cord wrapped around his neck. So he was very like not premature, but um, he had some, not so much learning difficulties, but fine motor difficulties. So as a toddler and me being 12 at that point in time, I saw some of the frustrations that he was experiencing. As I said, it wasn't so much with language development. I mean, he was talking, but it was more with um, just fine motor and it took him a little longer to process information. And so He was really frustrated often, and I remember enjoying, like, singing songs so his teachers would send home ideas for how we could engage him more, and um, I loved singing Sesame Street songs with him and getting him involved and that sort of thing. And then also, I know my father, I, I don't think he had a diagnosis of dyslexia, but definitely expressed that, uh, like, reading and writing was difficult for him, learning. Uh, so those were early inspirations for me. 
And then my older sister was a special ed teacher, and I would go with her to uh, summer a summer position she had at the rec center, and she would just ask me to interact with the mostly high school students. It seemed like most of them were teenagers in my recollection, and I just would hang out with them, you know, so some of them had like Down syndrome and autism. Um, so I think, at, again, this was when I was a teenager, so I was started to feel very very comfortable, you know, being with people who had special needs. So, and then also my sister talked to me a lot about what she was learning in college, inclusion. She was passionate about inclusion for people with disabilities. And I say that, you know, loosely, I know we have all kinds of ways of talking about that, right? Like mm -hmm. neurodiversity. But yeah, so I heard a lot of that from her, but I didn't want to be a special ed teacher. So then I started talking with her about other options. And she introduced me to um, her friend, Anne Hansen, who got her master's at UW-Eau Claire, where my sister went. And she, when she was out working, she invited me to come and observe. So I did that. And yeah, that was the beginning. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a story. You have a lot of little features that brought you into this. Yeah. Which is really cool. I always think about how people got into this field because it's, it does feel really niche and really small. Mm -hmm. And unless you have some sort of exposure, you might not really know about it. Yeah. Yeah. I will say this, that, um, I actually did start in physical therapy. So mm. that was uh, in undergrad. I started in that field. And then my sophomore year, so at UW-Madison, the physical therapy program is very competitive and you have to have A's in chemistry and physics. It's mostly based on your science grades. And that, I mean, I did okay, but I wasn't, it wasn't my forte, mm -hmm. like physics <laughs> and chemistry. So... I started getting frustrated and, and a little worried that I wasn't going to get into the program. So I went into career counseling at UW-Madison and I answered all these questions and came up most compatible with speech language pathologists. Wow. And they work so much with PTs too. Yes. Yes. Oh, and that was helpful too, because then when I switched over, I already had a lot of the prerequisites needed mm -hmm. for it. So, Yeah. That's so cool. So let's jump into where you are right now a little bit. You work at the University of Colorado Boulder. Mm -hmm. You're an assistant clinical professor and you teach, at least for us, you taught AAC. Mm -hmm. You also serve on the admissions co committee. That's correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what advice do you have for students who are applying to graduate school? What are some of the things that you look for, features that you want to see in applications? Yeah. So I think... Um, Obviously, one variable is grade point average, but I, you know, I want to encourage those who maybe don't have like a 3.5 to a 4.0 that it's not impossible. So I think a lot of what what we have looked for in our committee and we have a rubric um, where we actually go through and score different aspects of the application. Uh, so your work experience is also a big part of it, um, showing that you've had some experience working with people who have disabilities. If it's not a paid position, if you haven't had a career, let's say, as an SLPA or even an, a teacher or a paraeducator, um, volunteering in those capacities, uh, that is really considered in, like a very valuable experience if you're applying to graduate school. Uh, your mission statement or your reason for your statement of purpose um, for coming into the program is also really important. So there I would say, you know, like talk about your influences. Uh, I've, we've had people who have been influenced personally, either a grandparent who had a stroke, a brother who was autistic, you know, that sort of thing. I would say bring that in in a really concise way, but talk about it, you know, on a heart level. Yeah, so volunteer experience, work experience, mission statement, grade point. If your grade point average is lower, a little lower, and you're concerned about that, you can actually address that in your statement. Mm, I've never heard that. And mostly it's like, 
if you had some difficulties, let's let's just say a family member, a close family member passed while you were in undergrad, right? Or there were other circumstances that maybe health problems, you had some health problems that affected your grade point average. Talk about that and, and how you still have the ability and the potential to work through a rig- rigorous program and still be competitive. That's great yeah. advice. Yeah. And then one other area is diversity. So because we, especially at CU Boulder, but I think around the country, these this is a very important topic these days is how culturally sensitive and how much experience do you have with different cultures. So if you don't seek that out and really work on increasing your cultural sensitivity and awareness, if you already have a lot of experience or you are someone from a BIPOC community, mention that. It's very important that that's part of your application too. That's good. Yeah, That's great. You work, as I mentioned, as a clinical faculty, and you have a lot of roles in our clinic specifically. What is some advice that you have for incoming students who are just getting started in a clinical setting? I think asking questions, you know, being candid, um, talking about that a little bit is important. Um, And at the same time, trusting the process, right? So, um, it's you're not going to learn everything overnight. Um, so it's about taking some risks and asking for feedback. And if you don't feel like you're prepared enough for a session, um, just asking for a little more support in the beginning. Um, you know, I, yeah, I think about times that I've provided support. And, you know, I think then, students ease into it right because at first it's like I don't know if I can trust <laughs> I don't know if I can trust this process I can personally say I, I've been in that position with Sherry as my as my clinical faculty I was scared I was so scared yes so scared. it is scary and I I think I've been doing because I've been doing this long enough I can kind of see to the other side, right? So I was able to assure you, but I understand that for someone who's never done it before, you know, that it is scary. So it definitely became less scary and you did give great advice. Yeah. At first okay. though, I was still scared. <laughs> Good. I will say though, I also was quite strategic about the clients that we had first. So like in this particular instance, it was a speech language and AACDX team. So, um, so we assessed a child first versus an adult who had some aggressive tendencies. So, um, I think also, you know, maybe how like if you aren't sure of that information ask your clinical faculty um, so who are the clients we're assessing this semester who are we starting with Um, or you know yeah like if you feel like the client you have is a very complex client and does require a lot of skill on your part then just it's reasonable for you to ask for more support that's really good advice because it's always a little intimidating to ask for that but from firsthand experience, I've never heard no. <laughs> yes, right. They're always willing to help. Yes, yeah. I mean, I hope so. That's why we're that's why we're doing what we're doing. On that note, what made you want to work in this higher education setting? Good question. Yeah, I actually wanted to pursue my PhD um, at one point in my life, and I did have an opportunity to do that, but. The circumstances made it a little challenging. Just I was living in New York City at the time. I had the good fortune of working with some of the leaders in AAC, Dr. Karen Erickson from UNC Chapel Hill, uh, Dr. Caroline Musselwhite. I was working with them on a fairly regular basis uh, in New York just because we, we all were working with some of the same clients. And Karen had a big grant project and was taking 
uh, PhD students. I mean, she always takes PhD students, but she actually reached out to me and said, you know, I wish you would apply for the program. And I really wanted to. I just had, I still had a home back here in Colorado. I had a lot going on with my family in Wisconsin. And I also felt like I really loved what I was doing with the clients in New York. And I, I honestly didn't no, and they told me we don't know who would take your place. So I, you know, I, it probably would have worked out, but for I decided at that moment in time it wasn't the best time for me to go get my PhD. But so, but I loved the research that Karen and was doing. Like I was very inspired mm -hmm. by that, and I loved how it was also practical. She was very practical, but yet she knows the research behind it, mm -hmm. and so when. I moved back to Colorado. At first, I was not working at the university. I was working on a grant project in the Jefferson County Public Schools. And I got a random email from Allison Setti at CU Boulder. But we had graduated from UW-Madison together. So Allison is another professor in our department. And she knows I specialize in AAC. And so she reached out to me and said, we have an opening for a clinical faculty. We really need someone with AAC experience. Would you consider applying? So I did. And ironically, I had just sold my house in Boulder and oh, moved no. to Denver. <laughs> Oh, no. So, you know, on the one hand, it didn't seem like the right thing to do. But then I was <laughs> like, you know, this is probably going to be a position in which I'm going to grow a lot. It's not going to be easy, but I'm going to have the opportunity to keep up to date with research, which is why I had wanted to get my PhD, but also to influence the next generations of SLPs. And that really inspired me too, to feel like I would be making a difference that way and still having direct contact with clients. So it had all the elements to a position that I was hoping to have. That's amazing. So do you feel like you've been able to shape what your expectations were with what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah. I will say the first few years were really rough for me. Because it's a big learning curve. And, you know, when you're teaching at this level, you need to really know what you're doing. And so I had to catch up with research. I had to do a lot of reading because I not only am I specializing in AAC, but also in literacy. Uh, so it's, it's a big body of literature, right, to know. And then there were times, you know, I had to admit like, I don't know that. I am going to need to learn that. And that's a very humbling when you're working with graduate students, right? Because they can be mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They'll ask those really hard questions. <laughs> right. And so, but I think because my heart is in it, for a good reason, like I'm really wanting this to be a win-win for everybody that my ego, I left my ego at the door and said, okay, I'm reading all your reviews and it's not easy, but I am going to take this and do something with it that's going to be beneficial, you know. If I've ever seen anyone with more heart in this, it wouldn't, it, you have the most heart in it. Oh, I see you. that absolutely in the way that you treat your clients, the way that you work with us, the way that you make yourself available the way that you're trying to give back and you are giving back. And mm. I think the dedication is in you every single day and every time you're in the room. Thank you. So I see that. Oh, that means so much <laughs> to me. I really appreciate that. That's the only way I can do it. Get up in the morning and sometimes <laughs> after only five hours of sleep. <laughs> oh, yes. You, I see you grading papers at 1 a.m. and then up again at 545. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I am working on... Again, changing that, yeah, you know, because I don't want to send the message like that's what you need to do. I actually really am trying to show more and more in life, like how to have that work-life balance, because then I think we're going to be best for everybody, for ourselves first, and then everybody else. I want to hear a little bit about all the other settings that you've worked in. Because uh -huh. I'm sure you've worked in a lot more than just our university based oh, off yeah. of your timeline. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so... I guess chronologically, I'll start there. What inspired me to 
get my master's is partially what I mentioned before, but uh, after I finished my undergrad degree at UW-Madison, I actually was having second thoughts about getting a master's in speech-language pathology, and I had an opportunity to work on the Menominee Indian Reservation in Wisconsin in the elementary school as a speech-language therapist. Now, that's a little controversial, but keep in mind that this is 1989, <laughs> and I had a temporary, or they call it a provisional license. I don't know that they do that anymore. But I, I think was, that would be like an SLPA now. Now, yes. Although I had my own caseload of 40 kids, mm -hmm. and I had a colleague who supervised me, so she had her master's in speech language. The, the reason that that was possible is because these were areas in Wisconsin where it was really difficult to recruit professionals, um, SLPs, with their masters. It wasn't just the Indian Reservation. There were some rural, small towns like that, too. So I had looked into that and uh, was hired. And then the, the uh, stipulation was that between the two academic years, so I was only there two school years, because I was so inspired by what I was doing that I knew I wanted my master's at that point in time. That's great. Yeah. But I went to UW-Milwaukee between the two school years, and, and I think it was six credits, six or nine credits toward my master's degree. I got there and then I could go back and work another year. So for every year that you work with a provisional license, I, I think you need, at that time, it was six graduate level credits. And yeah, and I also at that point in time then um, really embraced the culture and went to powwows and I was taking a Native American literature course um, that was taught by two retired educators. Uh, so anyway, that was uh, my first position. Then I went and got my master's. And after that, I went to Minnesota. So after I got my master's, I moved to Minneapolis. And I worked um, at the Courage Center, so which is a nonprofit outpatient rehab facility mm -hmm. uh, in Golden, Minnesota. And it's like where Christopher Reeves went for his rehab after his accident. Mm. But I was working in the pediatric department as an outpatient SLP. And it was mostly, so some of it was in the clinic there. And then they also assigned me to an inner city preschool. So it was a culturally diverse, family-centered inner city preschool setting. Wow. How so, unique. Ruben, Ruben Lind Learning Center was the name of it. Mm -hmm. And I was there two days a week and then in the clinic three days a week outpatient. And I was doing a lot of AAC even back then, but it wasn't only AAC. So I was doing some more conventional speech language therapy too. And a lot of collaboration. What I loved about that position, a um, couple things, um, it was collaboration. I, it allowed me to collaborate with like music therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists. So very much team oriented. And then um, 35 hours a week was full time. So coming out of graduate school and being kind of burned out, to be honest, I, I was really, it was like a breath of fresh air mm -hmm. because then I started, you know, playing more music, my guitar and, and just, uh, feeling like I had more balance. Being a my, human again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then after that, I moved to Boulder. So I was in Minneapolis about three and a half years. I actually was so inspired by working with music therapists that I thought about getting my master's in music and then combining the two. So that's initially what brought me to Boulder, Colorado, because Naropa had I wonder if they still do um, a master's level music program, music therapy program. So I came out and then Allison Setti, again, who I mentioned before, um, I worked in her lab just part time that summer. So I took a leave of absence from my position in Minneapolis, came out to Boulder to check it out for one summer, decided I wanted to move here. Mm -hmm. And then at that time when I moved in 97, I was working for the Boulder Valley Schools system um, 
and I was yeah in a couple different schools at that point in time. I think I was there for about four years before I moved on to the state level position. So it my position was a SWAC coordinator, which is the statewide assistive augmentative alternative communication program or. Yeah, so I was the coordinator for that. So every school district in Colorado has uh, like a SWAC, a, a local, a SWAC coordinator for their district. Wow. But I was the state level, at, and I was with another woman um, who had a background in physical therapy, and we worked very closely together. So we provided trainings. We would do that sometimes in Denver in-house. So I was working in Denver at that time. And other times we would go to these different school districts. So I was driving all over the state to provide training. Uh, I was also the main conference coordinator. So every summer they'd have a a conference. They still do have that conference. It's called something else, though. I have a different acronym now. Um, Another acronym in speech therapy? That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So yeah, so that is, um, that's, I guess from there, then I went to New York City So I was a SWAT coordinator for about three and a half years, and then I went to New York. And that was just from meeting someone who actually I had invited to present at a conference that I was coordinating. And I had read her work in grad school and was always very inspired by her, uh, Patty King Devon. And she had said, you know, I'm doing some work in New York City and just wonder if you might be interested in moving to New York. And uh, at that time, interestingly, one of my best friends was there. She was getting married. And yeah, and I also had started dating someone from New York. So all these different aspects of my life were coming together. And I thought, hmm, I guess I need to move to New York. (laughs) I guess I'll try out the East Coast. (laughs) So nine years. I thought it might be one, but I ended up nine years there and had a private practice. But I was fortunate to have a contract with uh, the New York Public Schools so because they were short on specialists in AAC. So then I I was, it, it was all private work, but it was a contract that was pretty consistent. And yeah, and then from there, came back here, worked at Jefferson County Public Schools on a large grant project and ended up at CU Boulder. Have you always worked with kids then? Primarily or? Um, no, I actually, I've worked with adults. In fact, I mean, in my private practice, which is pretty small at this point. I have the whole range. Well, my youngest now is five, all the way up to like 25. Mm. So, you know, can be young children, uh, school-age children, adolescents, and then some young adults. Very cool. Yeah. Have you, so I know you have a lot of AAC experience based off this, and we're going to get more into it. Have you worked with clients with aphasia with AAC devices as well? Or is, um, it kind of, is it a little different? I'll, I I have. I wouldn't say that that's my um, like my specialty or my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, more in an evaluation capacity. So like in our clinic, we do have the adult neuro clinic that another clinical faculty supervises. And I did the initial assessments for some of those. So they were referred to us for the evaluation, um, meaning myself and the graduate students who were on the team at that time. And then, uh, yeah, so we did the assessments for them. But once they got their AAC system, then I wasn't doing the supervising. I was helping a little bit with it in terms of like customizations and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I'm not as versed in like some of the other treatment approaches for people with aphasia, um, just to be completely honest. So that falls in, you know, that falls on other colleagues of mine. Okay. Before we get more into AAC, what setting of all of those have you enjoyed the most? It's, a, it's hard for me to pick a favorite. <laughs> I won't ask um, you to pick a favorite yeah. client. <laughs> no, no. Um, um, because I have a, t- I, I actually really loved my private practice a lot. Um, I think because of the flexibility 
um, but also because of the variety. But I, I did really enjoy the position in Minneapolis as well. You know, I felt like I could really make a difference in people's lives. I think that's the biggest thing for me is I, I need to be able to feel like what I'm doing is helping. Sometimes the challenge in a school district, and, and I also loved working in schools, and but the caseloads can be really large. And I ultimately just struggled with that because I felt like I knew what I needed to do, but I didn't have the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Although I will say I became very creative with service delivery models, and I started doing more team teaching and um, like consulting and realizing, okay, like it, it doesn't have to be the traditional, you know, pull out small group. Mm-hmm. Like I can go in the classroom and I, because I have five kids on my caseload in this classroom, so I can go in there and work with the teacher. And mm-hmm. usually I, that was a really positive experience for me. And I think for the kids too. Yeah. It sounds like that also makes it more functional for them in daily life too. Mm-hmm. Because as we know, it doesn't always translate out of the therapy room. Right. And yeah. that makes it more real into yeah. the moment. Yeah. And I was working in a middle school as my main setting um, in the Boulder Valley schools. So that also, they, they responded well to that because, uh, you know, at that age, they want to be, they don't really want to be pulled out, right? Mm-hmm. They want to be with their peers. And so doing activities in a team teaching capacity seemed to be really effective. Definitely. I have a kiddo who I was talking to today and they were saying, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I want something that makes me look like I fly under the radar. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I got that. That is fair. You are starting high school soon. <laughs> yeah. It's a scary time. You don't want people to notice you any more than they have to. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is difficult for me to say there's one favorite because I, I try to see like the positive and what I learned or maybe how I grew in every setting. But yeah. Flexibility is important to me and also being able to invest that time that I need to to Mm -hmm. really help people. Currently, you have a private practice Mm -hmm. and you work at the university as a professor and as a clinical advisor. Mm -hmm. Is there any other roles that you have right now, too, in terms of the SLP community? Uh, No, I think that's it. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure I had that covered. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I present sometimes at conferences. I Um, bet. I know you go to a lot of conferences. Don't you have one coming up? I do. I'm going, (laughs) I'm really excited about this one, but I am not presenting at this one. Um, This is the International Society of Augmentative and Alternative Communication Conference, and it's in Cancun, Mexico. I'm just excited about taking, being more of like a learner, you know, and, um, so that then I can take this information and come back and teach what's uh, cutting edge. And, mm-hmm. and also having opportunities to speak Spanish and be immersed in the Spanish-speaking culture and the Mexican culture. So, yeah, I'm thrilled about that. Yeah, um, I remember when you went to a conference when I was in your clinic uh-huh. for our diagnostic team and you came back with these super cool devices that uh-huh. were amazing. Oh, right, right, right. It's yeah. So that was ATIA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was um, in Orlando. So ATIA has been in Orlando, Florida, historically, uh, usually the, like the first week of February, sometimes mm-hmm. the last week of January, but I think it usually is the first week of February. And yeah, the, the, we did present there. We meaning um, a colleague, uh, Christine Brennan, Dr. Christine Brennan, and then some graduate students came with us too and presented on the AAC outreach grant project that we had mm-hmm. completed. We just received funding for that again. I know. I'm so excited. Yeah. I was hoping you would bring it up. Yes. So I am excited about that. Um, that's going to be in collaboration with the Denver School of Science and Technology. And we go there. So I'll be sending an email out today, hopefully, maybe tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just uh, sent it to our director to look at so she could look at it before I send it out. 
we will be recruiting um, four graduate students who want to be participate in this experience. And then we work with middle and high school students. And they're all individuals with complex communication needs. Some of them do come from bilingual households, so Spanish-English-speaking homes. And we work in the schools for the most part. And we either work with the systems they already have, because we did this project before, and we did it for three years, from 1990, ni- or 19, 2019, <laughs> we're <laughs> time-traveling, 2019 <laughs> to 2022, there were nine different evaluations that we completed, so nine of those students already have systems, mm-hmm. and then will assess more. So a lot of the grant project will be actually doing the therapy and the family training and training paraprofessionals and educators to implement AAC strategies, but also doing a couple of assessments for the students who don't have AAC systems who could benefit from them. Wonderful. Let's actually talk about what AAC is. Let's Mm -hmm. get into some more detail. So the reason I really wanted us to have this episode is not a lot of schools offer an AAC course and a lot of people have reached out with curiosity about AAC and wishing that they had more exposure and more experiences in grad school. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you to give us just some basic background knowledge. Simply, what is AAC? (laughs) Good question. So augmentative alternative communication um, involves any type of device or even unaided ways of communicating that uh, other than verbal communication. So when I let's start with the unaided because we all do that. Um, So gestures, um, sign language, uh, but nodding the nodding your head for yes, um, thumbs up, uh, shaking your head for no, shrugging your shoulders. All of these are forms of unaided communication. And then when we get into aided communication, then we're talking about devices of, of some sort or perhaps a low tech communication book with uh, picture symbols. So often because people with complex communication needs, um, especially those with from birth, right, with congenital conditions, our learning language, we use a lot of picture symbols for them. And then eventually, as they become literate, and hopefully that is being addressed and taught, they could switch to more text-based systems. And and it's a little different for someone with an acquired condition, you know, who, who let's say, someone who had a stroke or, or a traumatic brain injury um, who had language, they may start with a text-based system if they haven't lost that skill. But it's essentially any type of alternative form of communication, aided or unaided. Excellent. What are different formats that you could see it in? For example, eye tracking versus touching with a finger. What are all Mm -hmm. of the different capacities that they come in? Yeah. So, well, what you're referring to are the access methods that people use. Yeah. So don't take points off. I forgot that. uh, No, no, no. (laughs) Um, All good. So most of us can use, or a lot of us, I should say, can use our fingers, right? So when you're using your phone or the iPad or even our computers now with touch screens, we're using our fingers. That's the most simple form of direct selection. However, now we can use our eyes for direct selection too. So we've seen uh, more eye gaze systems in the last 20 years or so. Um, maybe even, I think, I mean, the technology was around even before that, but it was more like in the military, and then now it it's uh, it obviously has other functions and and applications. So, um, yeah, so that those are direct selection methods, access methods. If you are working with someone who, let's say, can't use their eyes because of blindness, and also they're limited in terms of physical abilities, then we would use scanning. So something like 
two-step scanning, or switch scanning. So switches are placed in different locations around on their body. So that's the first step is to figure out a switch site, like where is their voluntary movement that can be used without fatiguing or without um, causing injury, right? So can it be the back of their head, let's say, and you put a switch on the wheelchair headrest, right? Or on the side of the head, or maybe the knee. There's a lot of creativity involved, and usually it's very important to uh, collaborate as well with physical therapists and occupational therapists when you're working with clients who need that type of access method. Mm There's also voice activation. So some switches, there are so many different switches now available. So if you have a client who uses two-switch scanning, it can be, they don't even have to have contact with the switch. So it can be a proximity switch where there's just some motion that activates it. Like I said, a voice-activated switch. Uh, So there are many um, different types. That's so cool. Where are some places people can look to see how that works. So can they watch YouTube videos or is there a resource that people could go online and look at how those different methods are done? I mean, there are several. So any of the AAC companies have websites with videos on them, like Toby Dynavox, PRC Saltillo. Those are two of the bigger ones, but also Think Smart Box. Now, they would all have Forbes AAC, as I'm talking, and there are several. So you could just go Google those companies and then find the videos of clients using two-switch scanning. Or there's also single-switch automated scanning. I know that all of them would have at least one or two videos. And then there are some others. So like Practical AAC um, Carol Zangari is the woman who originated that, um, practicalaac.com. And then Caroline Musselwhite has a great website that you could look at. I'm not sure if she has specific videos of, you know, just scanning, but I would guess that she might. One more I'm thinking of is TalkSuite Pro. Um, which is Richard Ellenson and Tom Ellenson. And even though Tom uses direct selection with his finger, I know they have some videos and their app has scanning to switch scanning as an option too. There might be some videos there. So yeah, and I know I'm missing a lot of resources (laughs) out there too, but if you were to Google uh, to switch step scanning, you know, or access methods and AAC systems, I think you would find quite a bit. Okay, great. And I will make sure to link some of those down below in the show notes so that people can find them a little bit quickly through there. Too. Yeah. And if I think of more, I'll send those to you too. Great. And yeah. again, I will, they're not in a, every single resource out there, but it's something to start with. Yeah. <laughs> more on this. What are some of the populations that you might see for AAC users? Yeah, it varies. Um, and there's a large continuum. So, so I think of some of the syndromes, uh, people who have syndromes that I've worked with. Um, so Angelman syndrome, Down syndrome, Rett syndrome, autism, of course, and then a cerebral palsy. Those are some of the main medical diagnoses that my clients have. Um, sometimes it's just global developmental delays. Also, another one might be severe childhood apraxia of speech. Because if they are unintelligible and barely speaking and they're five and intellectually they're within normal limits, there's going to be a lot of frustration. So, yes, yeah, so that's another population. And keep in mind um, that sometimes AAC is temporary, right? The literature shows, and, and from my own experience, I've seen it, that As they use these systems and their language develops and they become more proficient at communicating, um, they may start to talk, especially someone with childhood apraxia of speech if they're getting some treatment for the motor speech disorder and AAC at the same time, they will probably let go of that AAC system eventually, they may anyway, and then 
they'll use their natural speech as their primary mode of communication. That has also happened with individuals who have autism. So I, I've seen it. I'm working with someone right now who's five. And I mean, we started at when he was three with an AAC system. He wasn't really talking at all at that point. And I started using the system with him and his family was using it. And now he's really talking. I mean, we still use his system for comprehension and social engagement and that sort of thing. That's just something to remember because I think sometimes when people talk about AAC, they think it's this permanent, you know, oh no, we're giving up on speech. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case. In fact, it can enhance, it can actually promote speech. Definitely. I've seen that too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we talked about some of the ones that are congenital. Are there things that come from primary progressive oh, yeah. as well? Yeah, those absolutely. Again, like I said, my most of my experience is with those who have congenital. But yes, absolutely. So traumatic brain injury, those who have traumatic brain injury, um, aphasia secondary to a stroke. Um, uh, we've had yeah primary progressive aphasia. ALS. Absolutely. Yes. Trying to think of some of the other conditions, Mm -hmm. but there are a lot. Um, Even again, it can be sometimes like a short term, like if they're in like a a, like throat, head, neck and throat cancer. Hmm. Um, And, you know, it might be while they're in the hospital or I mean, that might be more of a temporary solution, but it can really enhance the quality of life. Um, even if it is end of life. So that, that is a whole nother area of AAC. If you're dealing, if you're working more with that population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell everyone a little bit about voice banking? I know I've seen it specifically for people with ALS. Mm-hmm. Are there other populations that would use something like voice banking and what is voice banking? Yeah. Let's start with what voice banking is. So when there is residual, there's speech. So let's start with someone, let's say, who has ALS and it's an early diagnosis and they know that they're going to be losing their speech eventually. They can bank their voice, their speech. So they can, like model talker is just one example, right? So they would record hundreds or I forget how many, I think it's over a thousand messages and they send it in and then they have that voice uh, and it's their own that can be imported into an AAC system and used. There are also other options like vocal ID where you you may not be able to speak. Your speech might be very unintelligible, but you can, you're vocalizing and producing word approximations. And you can also send in recordings and then they create a voice that's comparable to yours or similar to yours. Mm-hmm. And then it's the same process now. I'm not sure like, you know, in terms of like differences in prices and all of that. But that's the technology behind it. I think this application really could be great for a lot of different types of clients. Um, I mean, it started probably most with those who have ALS. But it could be for someone with cerebral palsy. It could be someone with autism. I mean, really, it's anyone who wants more of a accurate persona, mm-hmm. you know, a voice that matches their personality. Yeah, because when we were doing our diagnostic team, we were looking at the different voice features and you could set a voice. Mm-hmm. But one of the cool things is that opportunity for the client to record what their voice could be mm-hmm. to make it feel very unique and to feel very much like them. Yeah. Very yeah, cool. Absolutely. Yeah. It's something that I think when we're first setting up a system for someone, we don't think about that, mm-hmm. but it could make a huge difference in the person's comfort you know, and ability to then social, be social, like, like you said, like for a teenager, let's say, right, it could make huge difference. Absolutely. And they'll be probably more inclined to use it because it feels like who they are. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the things that you look at to determine eligibility for a device? Well, let's see. I mean, a lot of it is, are their daily communication needs being met? And to do that, we need to 
do some assessments, but ask those who are closest and have been working or living. Um, so family members, other professionals that might be working with the individual. If there's frustration and there are a lot of moments or even just some moments of frustration on everyone's part. So we don't know what this person is trying to say. There's frustration and we need a way, a better way to do this. So, uh, yeah, that's a big part of it. You know, I think in the past, many years ago, people talked about prerequisites, right? Like they need to have cause and effect. They mm. need to have a certain intellectual ability. Um, that's not the case. I, I do think, you know, desire or motivation to communicate is important, but at the same time, sometimes because people have been without a system, especially if it's an adult who has been without a system most of their life, they're kind of in learned helplessness, right? So it's like they don't know what it's like to experience communication and the power of communication. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, if they have intentional communication, they're showing you with facial expressions and unaided communication that they're interested in communicating and there maybe is some frustration that they can't express what they need to, they're eligible. From there, it's really just a matter of finding the best system for them. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole nother process, right? And looking at features that they need and how they would access it. And, and the team is, is important in that process. Absolutely. Let's say someone gets a device and their sessions start, what are some of the key things that should be focused on when you're in your treatment with a new AAC user? Well, let's see. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was um, a big question. Yeah, yeah. Motivation is key. So starting with what does this client love to do? What is this child, adolescent, adult, what do they love to do? What are they passionate about? What can, what do they want to communicate about? Or what do they want to express with other people? And start there. So if you can identify, you know, a few topics, activities that they want to engage in during therapy. And then vocabulary is a big part of it. So again, I'm right now speaking more about those who would be developing language, but it could be for those with acquired conditions too. So what words are going to be most important? What messages? So you're going to sometimes have them, they're going to be using single words. Sometimes they're going to be formulating and combining words. And then other times there are going to be some of those single symbol, full phrase messages programmed in for social reasons, right? So need to look at vocabulary. Robust vocabulary is important, but we don't want to overwhelm some of um, if they're an early symbolic communicator, we do need to limit the number of words, but not too much. Or teach a group of words like every week, let's say, you know, and then keep expanding from there. Mm -hmm. So core words, of course, for the uh, for those with more congenital conditions that are developing language, um, projectcore.com is a great resource for that. So thinking about the most frequently used words and teaching them those. I also think with adults who have acquired conditions or even adults with congenital conditions, you want to include their caregivers and their parents and anyone in their lives that they interact with regularly and maybe put photo albums in their system so they can socialize and talk about those. Maybe mm -hmm. put some of their daily routines in their devices so they can talk about those. So do therapy in the day program or at the home, you know, so being flexible about where you're doing therapy, if possible. Also training the communication partners. So as you mentioned before, generalization is challenging, right? The more that we train those who are going to be communicating with them on a daily basis, the more likely it is that they're going to be using this system outside of therapy and making improvements. Absolutely. And that's just with almost every practice, but 
very important, I feel like, to AAC, especially because if you don't want to have that device in front of you, then you might not be able to communicate. You might want to hide it. You really want to push generalization with AAC. Yeah. Because, again, it's so easy to be a participant in the therapy room and then to leave the room and never touch it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think I think that's true for almost any type yeah. of therapy, to You're be right. honest. Like, the more we can make it uh, user-friendly and practical so that it's something they can do on a daily basis, even if it's just, you know, 15 to 30 minutes mm-hmm. at mealtime at home or something. Great. Is there any other big things that our listeners should know about AAC that I did not ask about? Because you are the expert. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Christy. I still have more to learn, but um, maybe that is something that I think is important to remember is just it's technology. So it's changing and evolving quickly so um, that we, we need more SLPs with this area of expertise um, to not be intimidated by it, but to see it as a really interesting, um, creative opportunity. I love AAC because of how creative you need to be. Every client is different. Mm -hmm. And so, and then also it's dynamic. So keeping up with as much as possible, but there are a lot of conferences and more resources online now, keeping up with that and just remembering that again, as I mentioned before, I just want to reiterate, it's not always a permanent solution that sometimes it is a tool. It's, it's, it's temporary and it can promote speech. And also remember that it's the idea of multiple modes of communication, which I bring up a lot when I'm yes. teaching my AAC class, right? So even if someone has an AAC system, they are communicating in so many other ways. And it's important to pay attention to all of that mm-hmm. and to teach them that their eye contact, their body language, their facial expressions, any gestures they can do, any vocalizations, even if they're embarrassed about their voice, that that is powerful. Your voice is powerful. Even mm-hmm. if you use your voice as you're using the AAC system, that is going to really help people like relate to you. Mm-hmm. So focusing on multiple modes of communication is really important. This just made me think of something. Can you put an AAC device to scream? Oh, you probably could. Um, yeah, yes, <laughs> like I'm if sure I, you if, could. <laughs> if I was really mad <laughs> and I was trying to communicate my device, like, I really want this. Like, can you make it yell at someone? <laughs> so certainly. <laughs> well, almost any AAC system allows you to record human voice. So mm-hmm. you could, as if an AAC user has someone's voice they want recorded in there to scream something, they certainly could do, you know, do that. But there are certain apps that have different tones of voices. And I'm going back to the TalkSuite Pro. I know that um, that's one feature that's really fun about that is you can use the voice has different tones, like whiny, the mm-hmm. whiny voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, loud. I, th- I think I don't remember all the different types of personalities you can yeah. convey. But um, yeah. So, I mean, the answer is yes. How you do it probably varies from system to system. What is one of your favorite features on a device that you've seen? Well, I do like, uh, I like linking. Easy customization is always important because, um, I mean, we customize less these days because we're focusing more on like those high frequency words, but um, having a user-friendly, easy to customize system always Mm -hmm. makes life easier. Magnified symbols can be great for people like with visual impairments or who are even having their early symbolic communicators. So like a symbol can um, kind of pop mm-hmm. and, and magnify. Airdropping files is always nice for backing up. Um, that's a feature that makes it more user-friendly. Yeah, and then there's some that like have symbols that are a little more like a persona, like a character, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, I mean, I do find like different systems have different features. When there's sentence 
prediction that can be helpful for some clients who are working on that at that level of linguistic development. Mm -hmm. And then also having a lot of those messages that are social, right? The full phrase, the single symbol, full phrase messages that can be a nice feature too, especially in for those high school students and young adults who want to socialize more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one that I really liked was the jokes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. That's a, a little... big, that's a big one for, especially like, well, I, I think adults even like that. Oh, who doesn't like jokes? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it gives joke. you a chance to just kind of get in there and show some personality. <laughs> right. Which is charming. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's one of the really cool things about AACs is you can really still, I feel like some people might think they don't have the personality through the device, but that is just not true at all. Like you see senses of humor. We had a guest speaker who was really funny one time. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So it's it's great to see that those are things, those are, you can still bring out the elements of your personality through your devices. Yeah. Yeah. So Tom Allenson is who you're talking about. Yeah. He I definitely, know if I, could say the name. <laughs> I, I think he would be totally fine with that, but yeah, he can convey his sense of humor for sure. Mm-hmm. And his dad created that app initially because of that. Like he wanted his son to be able to express his personality, mm-hmm. you know. So, so yes, cool. yeah, I think we've evolved in the field of AAC in that direction. Great. So before we wrap up, why don't you tell us a little bit about your private practice? Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's VocaTherapy, VocaTherapy.com. Well, actually, right now it's .org. Um, (laughs) I have a very small private practice. I work primarily with those who have congenital conditions, several individuals with autism and with cerebral palsy, traumatic brain injury. Um, I've worked with those who have Rett syndrome. And yeah, at this point, I go into their homes mostly. Some of them come to me. Uh, and we work, I have a home office and, and we work at my house. Um, I also sometimes go to day programs. So I have one client that's in a day program and it just works out that I go there to work with her. And so training her staff there at this point in time, there, I have several different systems too. So my clients are using different systems. There are a couple clients who need a new system. So we're in the middle of, of AAC assessments at this point. Mm-hmm. But I work closely with the parents or the caregivers too. That's a big part of what I do. Um, so usually, yeah, I'm working with them once a week, but I'm trying to train the people who are with them the most, like I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it, it, it varies, but at this point around between five to 10 clients. That's great. Do you do evaluations on your own as well? I do the evaluations and I uh, usually just work with like the companies to get loaner devices and Mm -hmm. try three, sometimes more devices with them and include the parents and also work with the school teams if if they are school age kids. So a lot of collaboration in that process. Okay. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we start the wrap up? I don't think so. Um, this has been a really great experience and, um, yeah, haven't been on a podcast before, so (laughs) I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Christy. Hopefully I've prepared you to be on other podcasts. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. These are a couple of wrap up questions. The first one is what is your go-to movie book or TV show when you need a mood boost? Wow. Oh my. <laughs> it's always such a tough question. <laughs> um, yeah, you mean like a good laugh. I probably need more of that. So honestly, it just I do a lot lately with um like it's more serious but self-help or or meditation mindfulness and for me it's not so much about humor but just kind of checking in um gabrielle bernstein gabby and she actually has a podcast herself but i like sometimes just look back at her books i've i've read in the past right Mm -hmm. um so like um the universe has your back or super attractor and look at some of her suggestions. Like if I'm feeling stuck or um, in a negative 
mood. You know, she has some really practical guides for like raising your vibration. Mm. Um, so let's say I'm frustrated, you know, and like she has this continuum and sometimes I just page, I go to that page in her book and look, okay, so right now I'm pretty low vibration. I need to bring it up a few notches and just be like, have gratitude, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So, and she has a lot of YouTubes, YouTube videos and, um, like I said, podcasts. Um, so now and then I listen to her if I'm feeling stuck or kind of in a low mood. Honestly, I need to watch more movies. <laughs> that should be, maybe that's a goal of mine. <laughs> I love film, but I don't take the time to watch many movies. I think whatever you need to get you to a good place is valid and valuable yeah. and good. Yeah. I think a couple other people have mentioned self-help books that help them, you know. Yeah get through the day too especially when they're down so yeah I think whatever everything is a yes. good thing to have yes and it's different strokes for different folks right that's the one yeah <laughs> all right so our last question is where can our listeners find follow or reach you if they have questions about anything that you brought to the table today so vocatherapy.org would be the website and it's probably the best place at this point. I work at the University of Colorado Boulder. So there's also a website there with my name. I mean, you can find my name, Sherry Tennant, there. I'm also creating or have created a community AAC site. It's actually through Canvas at CU Boulder. Maybe what I can do is find the link for the general public. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure right now. I've just shared it with former like students mm -hmm. from my AAC class, but I know that it can be shared with community members and I have uploaded a lot of resources there so I can get that link for you, Christy, so you can include that. Absolutely. And I will definitely have your website linked in the show notes below too. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. This yeah. was so great. I'm hoping that this really helps people who didn't have access to AAC communication get kind of familiar with it. And then also just have a starting off point yeah. to jump into it. Are there any resources? I know we talked a little bit about this, but are there any resources that you think are good for people to learn about AAC for the first time, like some general information that they can start getting into? Yeah. I mean, some of the websites I had mentioned before would be great. I do think uh, Carol Sangari's uh, Practical AAC. So practical is with the two A's. So P-R-A-A-C-T-I. That makes sense. That's so cute. AAC. <laughs> it's just a really front user friendly website. And then Caroline Musselwhite. Um, and if you look up Caroline Musselwhite in AAC, she also has a great website. Yeah, I think those are great beginning places. And I'll make sure those are linked too. Okay. Yeah. And if I, again, if I think of others, which I have others on my mind, but I don't know the exact website, so I'll give you those and yeah. so you can include those. Yes. We can definitely include additional links below because again, this is such a cool area of our field, but again, not everybody has the teams and the support in their universities or even outside of university when they leave to find this information. Yeah. And I just thought of another one. So the Center for Literacy and Disability Studies. So through uh, the University of um, North Carolina, Chapel Hill, there is Karen Erickson and Penny Hatch um, and several others there. Lori Geist are at the center okay. for, um, yeah, for literacy and disability studies. So that they also have a lot of resources there and links to other websites with information. Perfect. I will definitely find those and include them too. Okay, great. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. This was such a good time. Absolutely. I really appreciate thank it. you. It's been fun. We'll catch you guys next week. Thank you all so much for listening to Speeching It Real. Please help us reach a bigger audience by rating us five stars and dropping a review. You can contact me anytime on Instagram at Speeching It Real or via email at speechingitreal at gmail.com. You can reach out with any questions, comments, or recommendations.